Welcome to the Real Freedom Podcast, where we inspire you to pursue your passion to gain time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. I'm your host, Mike Swenson. Let's get some real freedom together. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Real Freedom Podcast, where we talk about building time and financial freedom through opportunities in real estate. And so today, we are going to talk all about self-storage. And it's a topic that I've wanted to cover for a long time because I know a lot of people in the real estate space are interested in it. They want to learn more. And so we've got Jacob Vanderslice here. And Jacob is the principal at Van West Partners. You're based out of Denver and you guys focus on acquisition and management of self-storage centers and other opportunistic real estate throughout the U.S. And you have over $195 million dollars in real estate assets. So definitely an expert on the topic and uh, love to chat more about what you guys do. So welcome to the show, Jacob. Mike, we're, we're excited to be here. And thank you again for having us on. Very kind to you. As you mentioned, we're, we're based out of Denver. We got started investing in real estate full-time about 15 years ago. We did a lot of single family in the earlier parts of our careers, um, up and down the Denver Front Range, all over the country though. We got a commercial real estate in 13 and 14. We've done a fair amount of uh, adaptive reuse retail projects, kind of converting old buildings into restaurants, uh, breweries, yoga studios, coffee shops. And then we got in self-storage in 2015. And we looked at the asset class for a while. We liked the fact that it's been historically recession resistant. It's scalable, durable, repeatable. Uh, so we started off with a number of ground-up development projects here in Denver. We're actually selling all of those at the end of May. Um, kind of our first really big round trip. We've sold some other deals here and there. Uh, and then we expanded to the Midwest in about 16. And most of our deals leading up to 19 were, were single asset syndications. And we launched our first fund in uh, June of 19, closed that in uh, August of 20, launched our second fund early 21. We closed that early this year in Q1. And we're in the process of launching Fund 3. So self-storage is mainly what we focus on. We've got uh, 37 facilities around the country. Got some development deals in the pipeline, some acquisitions in the pipeline. And um, it's been a good asset class so far. So how, how did you guys decide to start with single family kind of back in the day? And would love to just kind of hear the thought process of the migration there. Because I think it's a natural kind of career tra trajectory for a lot of people as they, they start small. And even too, I, I know there's people out there that they're like, forget the small stuff. Let's just go big right off the bat, but would love to hear kind of how one thing led to another there and, and how you kind of evolved over time and advanced in your thinking and your mindset around this stuff. Yeah. I, I really miss the single family days. Uh, those were, those were fun days and kind of simpler times. We, we started off, I was in the fire service, so I had a lot mm -hmm. of time on my hands. So I did a few deals with a buddy of mine on my, on my days off. We'd buy them, renovate them, start, uh, renovate them ourselves, lease them out, hold on to them. And then um, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I quit my fire job and started doing real estate full-time. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the deals that we did uh, for many years were sourced at the auctions or trustee sales is what we call them here in Colorado. And we'd show up with a stack of cashier's checks. We'd buy you know, two to eight deals a week, uh, rehab them, sell them, run around town in our shorts and flip-flops. Um, and it was a great business, but what we didn't like about it is it was um, kind of overly transactional, meaning you're you're buying, making better and selling kind of too often and too quickly. And much to our uh, everlasting regret, um, we didn't hold on to many of these as rentals. We should have. We had no idea how good the market would get, of course. Mm -hmm. you know, back in the day, financing was tougher. Market was a lot more frothy. Uh, it's getting frothy again, but that's another topic. 
So yeah, we, we did a lot of single family. We've done over a thousand fix and flips and rentals uh, over the years. So we were doing big volume, but the average transaction size just wasn't that big. And that, that was kind of one of the reasons we shifted to commercial is just generally doing bigger transactions that uh, are more cash flow focused than they are um, turn and burn focused. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, uh, the genesis. Um, we didn't really stop doing single family and start doing something else. We kept doing single family and we layered in our commercial line of business. And, um, you know, the single family market tightened up so much. We, we basically shut the program down about two years ago. It was just too tough to find deals and it's gotten even worse. Uh, there's a lot of people in Colorado that are better at deal flow on the single family side than we are, but we were just not finding the product type that made sense. Mm-hmm. So it's all real estate though, whether you're building a $20 million storage project or buying a you know small single deal, you just have to know what's it worth when you make it better. Uh, what does it cost to make it better? And you kind of back into what you can pay for it. Dipping into the self-storage piece, what made you guys think you wanted to start it? Is it just obviously the, the opportunity, the numbers, maybe hearing what other people have done and you're like, oh gosh, these returns are nice. We want to get into it too. Or, or what kind of puts you over the tipping point to to start to explore that as, as a real option? Well, one of my partners had built a storage facility with his parents in high school. He was out there during the summers, uh, running a front end loader and helping GC the whole project. And they still own that facility. So he had some storage experience and uh, the deal's gone very well for them. And so we kind of knew a little bit about it. Um, we'd also studied it from a, a downside protection perspective, like which asset class did really well during the financial crisis and storage was kind of at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. And uh, we thought we were coming up on a correction, you know, three or four years ago, and we were wrong, right? It just kind of kept going. COVID happened, and values got even higher. So we just like the history of it. We like the fact it was uh, scalable. You're you're leasing out metal boxes to thousands of customers. They're all month to month leases. Um, yeah, it's been historically durable and repeatable. So that's why we jumped all in, and it's been a good business for us so far. So when when you're looking at analyzing a deal. You had mentioned even building some new facilities, acquiring current facilities. What are some of the things that you have to think about when analyzing those deals? Well, it depends on when you're doing, whether you're doing an existing acquisition or you're building something new. Let's just start with an existing acquisition. Somebody's out there, they've got their, their facility, they're looking to sell it. Maybe they don't know they're looking to sell it and you approach them. How do you analyze that? Well, the first thing you look at are market rents and you look at where the existing market rents are historically on the facility you're targeting for an acquisition and how those compare to other market comparable rents in the submarket. And what we see pretty often is we'll see opportunities where the deal is full, you know, mid mid 90s occupancy, sometimes higher. And the reason for that typically in storage, you don't want to be too full because it means your rates are too low. So you'll have these kind of mom and pop operators who fill their units up. They don't want to put bear with rate increases or revenue management. They just want to keep it full and keep their cash flow coming in. So we'll target deals like that that are below market rents. And we'll add some amenities to the facility, like a new gate system, camera systems, upgraded software, customer service, and we'll raise rates over time. Um, So yeah, one thing you focus on initially are are market rates, how they compare to what's at the facility currently. Uh, Another thing we look at too are supply ratios. So nationally, there's about seven or or eight square feet per capita of self-storage. And historically, in markets that are over that number, they kind of become oversupplied. Under that number is prime for acquisitions or development. Um, it kind of depends on the market, but that's something else we'll look at too, or supply ratios in the one, three, and five mile trade radius. 
that there's a lot of facilities and a lot of planned deals in the, in the development pipeline. Um, and occupancies are fairly low and rates are low. It's probably not a good place to invest because it's going to get worse. Uh, and likewise, in markets where they're tough to entitle, tough to replicate, pretty low supply, those are good markets to buy in. So supply ratios, rents, and uh, outside of self-storage beyond that, just good real estate fundamentals, uh, location, population density. Um, is the economy growing or contracting? What's the unemployment rate look like? Are people moving there? Is there in-migration or out-migration? So those are really the three main data points we look at when evaluating a new acquisition. So then if, if you're in a spot where you see, obviously, there's the ratios are low, then you're looking at development opportunities in, in those cities? Development is going to be done in the right markets and the right submarkets. And it's going to be done carefully. So the, the main risk of development is, first of all, it'll take you almost a year to get a project entitled, depending on the market you're operating in. Mm-hmm. It'll take you 12 to 15 months to build it. Then it'll take you another 18 to 24 months to lease it up and stabilize it. So a lot can happen during that pretty long time frame. Yeah. So you're looking really carefully at what the risk is of new supply being introduced to the market at some point during your development period or your lease-up period, how that's going to impact your rates, um, historic rates, historic leasing velocities, and other competitors in the sub-market. But generally, development, you've got to do it in, in markets that are um, very tough to get entitled. And that creates higher barriers to entry for other competition to come in and build a competing facility. Where have you guys been focusing on in addition to the Denver area? So we've got um, we've got actually very few of our deals are, are on the Denver front range. Um, we did an acquisition in Loveland in December of last year. That's about uh, 45 minutes north of Denver. Mm-hmm. But most of our deals are in the Midwest and Southeast. We've got projects in um, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Tennessee, Florida, North Carolina, Georgia. Um, so we generally like the Midwest and the Southeast. And we found those markets are kind of a good blend of current cash flow, but with also capital appreciation and upside. Mm-hmm. Um, we generally are not targeting, you know, class A primary coastal cities just because the yields are so compressed. Um, it's tough to pay a four cap on a stabilized product and really extract any value out of it. So we found those blend, those markets are kind of a good blend of, of current yield and of course upside as well. So you identify a market that you want to get into. Um, how does that process work? Do you just open up a open up the yellow pages, do some Google searches of storage units and start calling and, and try to maybe find some of those kind of mom and pop operations where you can add value right off the bat, or how do you go go hunt down and, and find those deals? Well, we're sourcing deals in three different ways. Uh, One way, which doesn't work very often, are just widely marketed deals. Um, Chances are, if it's it's marketed by a national professional brokerage outfit, we're not going to be able to pay a price that makes sense, given how competitive the market is. So we we rarely win those deals. Um, Our second deal flow channel is just broker relationships. Uh, we've we've done a lot of deals over the years with various brokers around the country. They, they'll bring us something with a seller that wants to sell quickly. They don't want to take it to market. They don't want a competitive bidding process. They just want someone who's going to close at their price. Uh, so I'd say about 65% of our deals have been off market, meaning not publicly marketed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of our off market uh, acquisitions pipeline are just direct to seller marketing. So we've got a marketing team that reaches out to self-storage owners that have owned the facility for X number of years. They're not institutionally traded. Uh, and we'll call them or send them a letter just saying, hey, we're storage investors. We're not brokers. We'd love to buy your deal. That's, uh, that's gotten us some good acquisitions as well. 
And what types of facilities do you guys like to invest in? I'm thinking more like kind of the the indoor versus the outdoor. Do you guys have kind yeah, of a, we, a layout that you like or even a size range that you guys like? Yeah, we, we have a mix of kind of all different storage facility types. We generally don't like to target deals that are below 30 or 40,000 square feet. That just kind of becomes too small. We'll buy deals that small as part of a portfolio, but in a new market as a single asset acquisition, it's probably too tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, we have facilities that are traditional self-storage, single-story drive-up, non-climate control, just rows and rows of building and garage doors uh, with drive aisles. We'll have deals that are also single-story, but a combination of climate control and non-climate control. And then we'll have deals that uh, have a multi-story component with an elevator access, but uh, also with single-story drive-up and uh, climate and non-climate controls in addition to the to the multi-story and then lastly, we'll target deals that are multi-story elevator access climate control deals. And those are generally um, in denser markets with lower supply ratios. Uh, what we've found on a lot of deals we've analyzed over the years, if it's an overly suburban location, um, people don't want to ride an elevator if they don't have to. They just want to walk in the main floor. Mm-hmm. So those first floor units will lease up very quickly and for pretty good rates. And the operator ends up cutting rates on the elevator access units much lower than they anticipated. So the multi-story strategy works, but it's got to be done in pretty pretty infill, low supply locations. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I've always thought about that, uh, you know, driving through Minneapolis, there's a kind of a big self-storage facility off the main highway and it's three or four levels high. And I always think as I drive by it at night when it's all lit up thinking like, yeah, who wants to drive up, haul their stuff up four floors, <laughs> haul their stuff back down four floors. It just doesn't seem very functional. Not, not just that, but if you have to push your cart, you know, hundred feet to the elevator, mm-hmm. wait for it to go up, push it another hundred feet to your unit, rinse and repeat four or five times while you load and unload. Um, that's not something customers want to do unless there's not really any other options in the submarket. The self-storage that we've used in the past, it's just nice to be able to drive up, roll up the door, open up the, the pickup truck, throw the stuff in. Now, we, you know, we've got the problem where I think the last time I was helping somebody with a self-storage unit was one of those days where it was like negative 20 below wind chill. And so it's like, okay, we're, we, we live in Minnesota. We've got to do this. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, that makes a lot of sense. So how do people go about funding these then? You know, what are what are options for them? If if I'm sitting here saying, okay, you know, Jacob, what you're telling me is really good here. I'm I'm interested to learn more. How do they go about finding financing? Well, you can um if you want to invest in self-storage as an asset class, there's really three ways to do it. Uh one way is to buy self-storage stock in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh extra space, cube smart, public. There's a lot of big players out there. Um the advantage to doing that is your, your position is very liquid. You could sell your stock and get a wire transfer to your Schwab account. But the disadvantage is, um, you know, prices ebb and flow uh, often, and you're also not getting any of the tax benefits. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second way to go out and invest in self-storage is to buy your own deal and operate it, but you got to invest a lot of time and money in, do, in, in doing that. And the third way, uh, way to do it is to invest privately with uh, private equity operators like us and other folks out there. And there's really two types of vehicles in the real estate investment world as people are out raising capital from private investors. One is a syndication, which is typically a single asset uh, deal, one LLC, one address. And the other vehicle is a fund. And a fund typically is identical to a syndication, but a fund is a collection of assets. It's almost like a mutual fund of self-storage to a degree. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do both. We generally gravitate towards the fund strategy because of the the geographic and cash flow diversification that a multiple multi-property portfolio offers versus one deal. 
Um, inevitably, in a given quarter in a 10 property portfolio, you might have one deal that's behind forecast, but the other nine are kind of balancing that out. And then sometimes that shifts. So um, yeah, the advantages to investing privately is you uh, you get the tax benefits, all the depreciation flows through to you as an investor. Uh, you're getting economics along the way, you're getting cash flow distributions, and of course, you're getting upside as well. So those are really the three ways to do it. Um, you know, it's easy to buy a stock. It's easy to invest privately. It's uh, it's not too easy to go out and buy your own deal. You really got to commit to it. So then in, in terms of those funds, um, you're essentially just sh- selling shares uh, in those funds for a certain amount. And you say, hey, you know, funds or shares are X amount of dollars. How many shares do you want? Or kind of how do you fill that fund up? Yeah, we typically sell our shares at $1,000 a share. Um, our, our last uh, last year, we deployed about $40 million in equity uh, across one syndication, one syndication in our, our more recent fund. Um, we're launching our third fund here very soon. We're going to target 150 in equity in that fund. Um, and as we raise more capital, more shares are created and uh, people get a preferred return, they get depreciation, they get upside, and they're an owner member of the entity that's owning all the storage facilities. So it's it's kind of a good way to participate in the equity side without having to be on the operations side. How are you finding the investor pool for that? I mean, obviously you guys have developed those relationships over time. Do you kind of have your hot list of, hey, we've got a new opportunity. These are the folks that have invested in a lot of our stuff over the years. We're going to go chat with them first, or kind of how do you how do you find those investor partners? Yeah, we there's a lot of different ways. Uh, one, the most obvious is just long-term relationships. Guys who have been with us for ten or twelve years, they're always good for a one or two hundred thousand dollar investment, whatever we're mm-hmm. up to. Uh, we do a fair amount of marketing. We'll do webinars and email blasts. Uh, we have a, a lot of investors who just fill out a web form on our website. We had a Zoom call. They invested. They've been happy. Um, we have some registered investment advisors uh, that have brought their clients to us, and then we have our higher net worth individuals, some small family offices. So it kind of runs the gamut. We've got people anywhere from a horse jockey to dentists, to doctors, to attorneys, to real estate entrepreneurs. Um, But I'd say our our kind of typical investor avatar is uh, people with busy professional lives that are fairly high income earners Mm -hmm. and they need a place to park their cash and they don't want to go out and invest in real estate themselves. Uh, We work with a lot of folks like that too. So when you find, when you find those people, um, you know, you kind of talked about that. Like you get you get the preferred returns, you get the upside, you get the tax benefits, the depreciation, all that kind of stuff. Is that essentially the the pitch to that type of person? Is hey, I know you're busy, I know you've got money, you want to park your money somewhere. Here's where you can do that. Here's what the you know that potential um, return is for you, and and go from there. Yeah, yeah. We um, our waterfall is pretty simple. We have an eight percent preferred return. Mm-hmm. Every distribution thereafter goes to return investor capital. So investors are getting 100% of the distributions the fund makes until PREF is paid and until their money's back. After that, it's between 70-30 to 80-20 in their favor, depending on how much they invest. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple structure. Um, if you do the math, investors are getting the majority of the upside. Um, we have some some fees baked into our deals that uh, allow us to keep our lights on until the very back end. Because mm-hmm. uh, people want sponsors to kind of survive and make a living during uh, during the whole period, of course. Yep. Um, so yeah, and that that's really how our waterfall works. And as I mentioned, the depreciation flows through pro rata to everybody. If you're if you're getting uh, ten thousand dollars a year in distributions, um, the majority of the time your depreciation from a K one will wash out a big piece of that. So mm-hmm. even though you're getting ten grand in cash, your taxable income might be two or three thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So there's some tax benefits to investing in real estate, uh, either, either as a direct owner or passively. 
of course. Yeah. Cool. Where is there is there anything that you get asked a lot or any other advice that you might want to share for somebody that is considering either getting into the space or even like you just more more passively investing into it? Yeah, I think um the the first deal that you might passively invest in is kind of scary, right? You're giving someone else your money, you don't have a lot of control. Uh, but a lot of our investors, they've got money in 15 or 20 different syndications and funds. So I guess my only advice is do your due diligence on sponsors, get to know them, make sure the economics they're representing and return targets are reasonable, make sure that the set of assumptions that go into producing those returns are also reasonable, um, and uh, and take a risk, right? It's really easy to sit on the sidelines and do nothing. Um, but uh, if you're not investing in real estate, you're not participating in it, and it's you know you can overthink things pretty easily. So yeah. go out and buy a fix and flip or invest in somebody's fund or syndication. It's um, in this inflationary environment with a lot of uncertainty ahead of us. I think uh, focusing on hard assets that produce cash flow is a defensible strategy. For sure. I mean, I just I just saw in a in a Facebook group post this morning, somebody was talking about, um, hey, I'm I'm one year away from retirement, and my 401k account just got wiped down by a hundred thousand dollars because of the stock market dip, and they're like what do we do? What's the strategy? And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you kind of got to just ride it out now. Like you're not going to pull your money out <laughs> and take the loss. Uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, double down on it, you know, stocks on sale, that kind of thing. But, but that just shows like, you know, that, that power of diversification and having something in a cash flow producing asset versus the stock market. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a lot of benefit to that. So, yeah, that's one of the reasons I like real estate. I mean, look at Netflix a couple of weeks ago, I think it went down 30 or 35% in a day. Uh, real estate's great. It doesn't go up 35% a day, but it doesn't go down 35% in a day either. Right. It's a little, little more steady. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Jacob, for, for coming on the show for people that want to learn more about you guys. Um, how can they find you? Yeah, we always love to connect and talk shop about real estate. They can go to our website, which is vanwestpartners.com. They can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn, uh, Jacob Vanderslice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's, it's really exciting to talk about self-storage. You know, like I said, we've, we've wanted to chat about it for a while and you've got a lot of experience in it. Mike, we appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. 